Hello, you are listening to a podcast by BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Today we will ask the question, could oil prices really hit $200? We will also discuss renewable energy. I'm Charlotte de Capoisson, your host on this show today. In a recent Odd Lots podcast from Bloomberg, oil hedge fund manager Pierre Endurant suggested a path for crude oil to reach $200 by the end of this year, at a time when historically tight markets are struggling to ramp up production and replace lost supply from Russia. Even if Russia and Ukraine were to agree to a ceasefire right now, Russian oil would not return to international markets in the near term, according to Mr. Endurant. Edmund Shing, Global CIO of BNP Paribas Wealth Management, joins me today to give his views on the topic. Hi Edmund, how are you today? Very well, thank you, Charlotte. Investors and consumers alike are asking themselves the question, are we heading towards an unprecedented $200 mark for oil? Edmund, do you agree with Mr. Endurance's forecast? And if so, what factors do you see for oil remaining expensive in the medium term? To begin with, Charlotte, I don't think $200 is an actual forecast. I think he was saying it could get there. It doesn't mean he thinks it will necessarily get there. But he clearly believes that the oil price will stay higher than people expect for longer than people expect. And I think that makes a lot of sense because if we look today at the risks, the risks are that Russian oil production and export declines towards the US and Europe. And that puts more pressure on Europe and the US to find supply from elsewhere. Now, when we look at oil supply today, it's already pretty tight. Thanks to the rebound in demand for oil since the end of COVID-related lockdowns, we have seen both economic growth pick up, but also oil demand pick up quite sharply. And we have seen oil supply struggle to keep up with this rebound in demand. And of course, with the Russian angle on top, that just gets more difficult. If we analyze today where in the world there is spare oil capacity that could be produced at short notice, we really don't have many countries that can produce more oil. Saudi Arabia, in theory, is one. The United Arab Emirates is another. And then you start to struggle. The other producers in the OPEC plus group are typically not even managing to produce today's quotas, let alone be able to produce even more. U.S. supply, we think, will go up. We think that the U.S. will supply more. And remember, the U.S. before 2020 was, in fact, the largest oil producer in the world. But this will take time. And so in the very short term, it's difficult to see where this extra supply could come from. And that's why oil prices ultimately could stay higher for longer. Okay, so I understand the reasons supporting high prices in oil for quite an extended period. But the question on everyone's lips is, would higher oil prices necessarily lead to a global recession? Let's not forget that in 2008, Brent crude oil prices exceeded $140 a barrel, causing a deep recession known as the Great Financial Crisis in the wake of the US subprime mortgage crunch. But in that particular case, sky-high oil prices were merely an additional factor triggering recession rather than the main cause. So what's different this time round, Edmund? Well, what's different this time round? Firstly, it's not just about the level of price 
that is important for triggering an eventual economic recession. It's the length of time it stays at these elevated prices. So if we were to look back, rather than 2000, let's look at the period from 2011 to 2014. You had three years where the crude oil price in Brent terms were somewhere between 100 and $120 a barrel, uh, similar to today's levels, but for three years, more or less. Even back then, there was no recession. There was low growth, but there was no recession. So that tells us that if oil prices stay where they are or even come down a bit, then we can still avoid recession globally today. Um, remember that the starting point before this oil price spike was actually very strong underlying growth in the US and Europe, worldwide, in fact. So luckily, we start from a very good place in terms of growth, even if energy prices slow subsequently the growth. The fact is the starting point was high. Now, secondly, let's look at energy efficiency. And let's not forget that we are at least 15% more efficient with our use of oil and gas than we were back in 2008. So in the 13 or 14 years in between, we have become more efficient with our use of oil by having cars that are more economical, airplanes that are more economical, and so on and so forth. So that also is important that Again, in a sense, $120 a barrel today is not really as bad for the economy as $120 a barrel or even more was back in 2008. The equivalent to $140 back then in 2008 would be more like $170 a barrel today. And we're still a long way from that level. So I think in conclusion, there is a good chance we can avoid recession. We can still see growth. Yes, growth will be impacted by these high oil and gas prices, but we do not see the reason why today we necessarily will see a recession. The International Energy Agency, which is part of the OECD, has put forward 10 key actions to rapidly reduce global oil demand by an estimated 2.7 million barrels a day. Can you tell us more about these measures? And secondly, do you think they're feasible? Okay, so to put that in context, uh, Charlotte, we must remember that global oil demand is around about $100, 100 million barrels a day at the moment. So to cut by 2.7, we'll be cutting oil demand globally by about 2.5%, roughly. Now, there are 10 measures they've suggested. Clearly, not all of these will be implemented in full. So the 2.5 million barrels a day reduction is a theoretical maximum we are likely to achieve less than that. But let's think about what we can do, what easy things we can do to reduce demand for oil in the short term. Reduce speed limits on highways by 10 kilometers an hour. That actually would save a bit. Simply by not speeding on French motorways at 130 kilometers an hour, but let's say cutting that to 120 maximum uh, and doing the same thing across the world would save quite a bit of oil because um, car engines are most efficient at around 80 to 90 kilometers an hour and above that speed become less efficient. So of course, the closer you get your average speed to around the 80 to 90, the more efficient is your use of oil overall. Working from home, well, we already do that. So if we can work at home, we can save more because we're not traveling to and from work, particularly in our cars. Thirdly, having car-free Sundays in cities. And this is something actually that could be quite, uh, quite desirable anyway, for pollution levels, and so that people could maybe enjoy cycling, walking, in the cities um, on Sundays. And this is something, for instance, that is already quite well implemented in, in cities such as Paris and London, but could be, again, made a bit more widespread. More use of public transport and also use of uh, electric scooters, walking and cycling. Now, this 
obviously is happening anyway. And I think also there is an economic incentive to do this. Clearly, people don't want to drive their cars when it's so expensive to fill up the tank and are uh, using public transport or cycling more. I, I certainly am doing that. So these are some of, I mean, there are other measures as well, but these are some of the measures that together would add up to this theoretical saving of 2.7 million barrels a day. Now, to give you some extra context, Russia was, was exporting 4.5 million barrels a day in total to the US and Europe. So again, this got offset quite a lot of that if these measures were implemented in full. But I think the, the, bigger, the bigger picture here, Charlotte, is that we do expect demand for oil to come down, to be affected by the high price. This is what we call demand destruction. Some of that can be bad for the economy, but not all of it. Some of it is just simply us adapting our behaviours to reduce the impact of high oil and gas prices on our household budgets. And I think that's something we naturally do anyway. And I think that will hopefully take some of the edge off the demand for oil and therefore ease some of these short-term pressures in the next month or two. And what about alternative energy sources? What role can consumers, governments, NGOs and companies play? Clearly, the higher that fossil fuel prices are, the greater the economic, the purely economic incentive to invest even more in renewable energy sources. But I would actually start even before that, because, of course, we can talk about investing more in solar, wind, power or biomass or hydroelectric or geothermal. These are all good solutions. I mean, one good solution, for instance, is investing, for instance, in um, heat exchange boilers and heat exchange pumps to partially heat your home instead of using gas via a classical gas boiler. This is something, for instance, the UK government has pushed quite recently. And I think, again, given the very high electricity and gas prices we see at the moment, could be taken up in much greater numbers across Europe, particularly if governments continue to subsidise these types of schemes. But actually, the most important thing we can do is promote energy efficiency. In fact, it's much better and easier to save and economize energy in the first place rather than to figure out alternative ways of generating the energy if we are more efficient with our use of energy in the first place we don't need as much energy to generate the same amount of output and so things that we can focus on are in making our energy more efficient in terms of let's say making the generation more efficient losing less in transmission and losing less in final distribution and there are all sorts of obvious things we can do, such as, again, install solar panels on the roofs of buildings. As I've said, heat pumps where you ground source or you air source heat, which gives you some ambient temperature. So you reduce your heating demand. Battery storage. So again, increasing battery storage means that we can store the electricity so that when wind and solar power generate that electricity we may generate more than we need but then we can store it for when we need it later when the sun isn't shining the wind isn't blowing demand reduction for instance replacing all lighting by led lighting more efficient heating and ventilation systems in buildings can obviously also reduce the amount of energy consumed particularly when those buildings are empty in typically at night so there are lots of things we can do and i think energy efficiency is probably one of the first places we should be starting today Finally, with oil prices spiralling, how can investors wisely play this space? Well, there are a number of funds you can invest in, which can focus either on energy efficiency, as I've mentioned. Uh, renewable energy and circular economy funds are classic ways to invest in this type of space, both in the energy efficiency and also the renewable energy generation, because we expect to see a lot more investment in that area. So these are funds we like very much. Uh, we would also suggest investing in alternative sources of energy. 
So not only renewables, but I think also we have to talk about nuclear, as we've seen Germany and Belgium uh, turn around on their promises to phase out nuclear energy and actually saying, well, in the, in the interest of energy security and to reduce our reliance on, for instance, Russian oil and gas, we, are, we actually need to keep nuclear and may even need to expand it. So I think that is important. And investment in fossil fuels, investment in fossil fuel production in Europe and in the US. Germany, for instance, has talked about drilling for North Sea oil. So I think ex oil exploration production is one area that is going to obviously come more in focus. And of course, oil exploration production in the US, particularly around shale oil and gas, is going to be very much in focus. Because one way, for instance, that we can, yeah, over time, start to replace our reliance on Russian gas is by importing more, more liquefied natural gas, LNG, from countries like Qatar, but also from countries increasing, such as the US. Ed Mishing, thank you very much. And to our audience, if you've enjoyed this show, please like, share and subscribe to our weekly podcast by searching for BNP Paribas Wealth on any podcast provider such as Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Goodbye. <laughs>